subatomic gigantic occasion was a sweep in Japan nation when along came a dude with an ultra attitude, a common Morado, the greatest kicker of Japan. And of all man. Last you short now, baby. To not talk big now, baby. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to a brand new episode of Kaiju Conversation. I'm your host, Elijah, and joining me as always, my lovely co-host and editor. Hello, I am Rex. And we are back at it again with a bonus episode. So this isn't going to be your typical one. We're not going to do our typical banter and whatnot. We're just going to dive right in. Right, Rex? Mm-hmm. Yes. So... This month, we're bringing you a surprise, but not really, because in our Parasite episode, we definitely... You may have hinted I, at this. I definitely was like, we should do this. Mm. Um, so so you got to see the birth of this bonus on, on recording, and now you're seeing the recording actually mature into a, a fully developed episode. Yes. So it, It's beautiful, isn't it? It is. And so one thing is... We're doing this as a bonus because this is not a kaiju movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not really tokusatsu. Mm -hmm. It's a war movie. Mm -hmm. Although in saying that, we're not trying to say that war movies are not necessarily tokusatsu. Because while this film specifically isn't a tokusatsu War movies play a pretty important part in the genre, especially when you consider A.G. Tsuburaya largely got his start in special effects working on war films. Right. It got it. He was so good at them that that got him <laughs> blacklisted by the U.S. military because they thought he was doing actual like filming actual stuff from from. And wasn't that what got him deemed as like a second class war criminal? Was it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I forget and the exact terminology. Honda served in the war. Yeah. Honda also made war movies. Tanaka produced war movies. So, and I mean, Godzilla was a direct result of World War II, right? And, mm -hmm. and Takashi Yamazaki's making a Godzilla movie that's quite literally post-war Japan. Right. So war cinema's pretty, like, it's it's almost like, kurosawa films right mm -hmm. when it when it comes to correlation with godzilla but like a lot of how the disaster tokusatsu movies are either overlooked or you only talk about the submersion of japan adaptations right there's also war films that that do fall under tokusatsu so technically mm -hmm. it is technically this but film it's not... not really but there are a fair few tokusatsu war films. <laughs> yes. Um, so I would say this is adjacent, but we cover genre tokusatsu, so it doesn't fall under the main episode stuff. Right. So if it's a bonus, but that's not discrediting this movie by any means. So No, the fact that we're covering it for a bonus, I think, says a little something. <laughs> yeah. So... I think what we should first do is establish what the Great War of Archimedes is. And I, I first want to establish you've seen a development on this on this podcast. Because when we started Yamazaki Month, I was like, the Great War of, of uh, 
Arak. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. And now it's like, oh, yeah, it's the Great War of Archimedes. We're good. So this movie is, is, is based off of a manga by Mita Norifuse. Mm-hmm. A manga uh, that, I've, that, to my understanding, is still ongoing. Yes, the manga is also titled The Great War of Archimedes. It started November 21st, 2015, and is still going um, up to this day. Uh, it's free online. If you subscribe, if you like uh, enroll for a certain website, you can you can read the manga, un- you know, in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went and I, I looked at some of the manga issues i want to look through some of them and it's right. actually this movie's really loyal to it like there's some manga panels that like were recreated frame like oh wow to the frame um <laughs> special specifically in the opening um mm-hmm. but we'll we'll talk about that so it's it's a very loyal adaptation all things considered mm-hmm. um the development of this movie kind of began back when Yamazaki was a child, believe it or not. Um, Yamazaki in an interview said that he had always wanted to do a Yamato movie, mm-hmm. which he kind of did with Space Battleship Yamato, but not really. Yeah, a bit of a different Yamato per se. <laughs> right. Um so for him, this was like he read the manga or found he found out about the manga, loved the story, wrote the script. He found it a little difficult to, like, figure out how to end the movie because. It was it's still ongoing, right? I think they're at three hundred and eight uh, issues, episodes, however you want to call it, of the manga now. Um, so, so Yamazaki was a little uncertain how to end this story that was still ongoing, but he did. Um, he loved the idea of this map- mathematician trying to go through the political problems of, of Imperial Japan, trying to you know solve this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and he adapted it to the screen, and that's what we have. And so after he wrote the script... Filming started in September of, of 2018, or filming ended in September of 2018. It was about a year and a half. So filming kind of started, I want to say, early 2018, late 20, 2017. Um, unlike a lot of Yamazaki's films, this one was mostly practical effects. I believe oh, really? he said there was less than 100 shots that were CG, all of them pertaining oh, well. to the battleship Yamato. Right. I mean, this film, like we suggested, isn't exactly effects heavy. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And so what we have is is a very interesting story, all things considered. And before we get into that, I do think that... So during our last recording, Rex, yeah, you and I both were like, we don't know a lot about the battleship Yamato, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I went and I did some research because I wanted to understand the background of this film. Oh, yeah. So I went and I did some research and I've got some I've got some stuff for you here. So the reason Battleship Yamato is so relevant to culture and and war is Yamato is actually the largest battleship ever made. Yeah. 
Um, I didn't know that. I knew it was one of the largest. I knew it was the largest. Did I say that last time? <laughs> did you? I'm pretty sure I did. I must have. It must have went over my head. Because it's the largest yes. warship alongside the, its sister, the, the Masashi. Yes. Um, they're both a part of a class of battleship dubbed the Yamato class. Right. Um, which was, you know, established for these ships. And they were actually going to do a third ship called the Shinano. And a fourth ship was in development, but both were scrapped when the Pacific Ward began to develop further following Mm -hmm. the events of Pearl Harbor. Right. Shinano became an aircraft carrier for the fleet, the Japanese Imperial fleet, but the fourth Mm -hmm. one just, it, it, it never went off the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, the development for the battleship Yamato started in October of 1935. This was after Japan left the league of nations, which was the, the United nations before the United nations was established Mm -hmm. in March of 1933. And what they wanted was something that would strike fear into the hearts of America and Britain so that they wouldn't want to fight. Right. I mean, it was also because, like, they, they from what I heard, they wanted it to sort of, rather than going for a large quantity, which is what the um, the American and British forces had the resources to build, since the Japanese army or navy didn't have that, they wanted something that, like you said, would strike fear just due to its size and magnitude. Right, right, because they, I mean, they really didn't. Like, they produced two of these ships, and they were going to make four, but they ended up just scrapping the other two because they they just didn't have the manpower, they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the budget. right. They just, they couldn't do it. And so they did this. And a part of it too was like the idea of, oh, we have the biggest, baddest machine. That's going to, you know, build up this confidence in in Japan, which right. is something that... And Japan, Japan was pretty, like, very proud of their Navy at this time, from what I understand. Yes. Like, that was essentially the pride of their army from what I was reading. Yes, because... So Japan didn't have a very well-established uh, air force. Right. That was something that was still kind of new to them. Right. Um, and, and what's nice is this movie kind of covers all of it, which yeah. is it's nice to see. So for them, you know, their their fleet was everything. And Yamato was the nation's pride. Mm-hmm. But that being said... A lot of historians suggest that by the time Yamato was built, it was obsolete. Yeah. And this film does cover that because yeah. the fight and, and some of the Japanese Imperial Navy higher ups knew this. The battle was going away from ships to submarines and airplanes. Yes. Which is something that, which is essentially a big part of this film's conflict. <laughs> right. And it's weird because you can tell they knew this because Admiral uh, Yamamoto is the one that 
said this. And then he was the one that came up with the strike on Pearl Harbor, Mm -hmm. which was a successful attack initially. Mm -hmm. What they didn't think about is the fact that doing that basically led to their them being cornered by Britain and America and Russia all kind of going in on them, which kind of destroyed their chances of anything. Which saying that I should probably establish now. This episode is going to try and stay very neutral. Yes. We're not picking a side. We're not saying anything. We're not historians either. (laughs) We're not. We're just telling you the facts. And we're going to stay pretty firmly right there. Right. Um, I'm Australian. I, I am not involved in American politics. And I just... I, you know, I'm an American watching a Japanese movie about World War II. Mm-hmm. There's going to be conflicting information and sources and and stuff that's biased on both sides. Right. I try to look at it very objectively, objectively, mm-hmm. and just kind of go on. I'm looking at this movie as a movie and what it presents as the movie. Right. And then I'm giving you some some background knowledge that I learned for this movie. And that's that. We're not pro-war. and Well, I, th- I think it's safe to say we're both anti-war. Yes. <laughs> um, but we're definitely not pro-war. And we're, we're, not, we're not saying one was more justified than the other. Just all war is bad. Mm-hmm. So I think with that, uh, saying that we're... We're out of the way with with establishing that, right? Um, but yeah, no the the idea of a giant battleship just wasn't a very substantial idea by the time Yamato was was put was uh, launched, and Yamato had a length of eight hundred and thirty nine feet. Or 255.727 meters, which if you kaiju fans, if you think about that, that's longer than most Godzillas are tall. (laughs) Actually, I think that's longer than all of them. Not Earth. Well, yeah. But Yamato was longer than Shin Godzilla and, and Legendary Godzilla, both of them. King of the Monster or Final Wars, Yamato was longer than all of them, which is kind of insane when you think about it. Like, that's huge. But that being said, even though the boat was huge, it didn't have that long of a of a wartime experience. So nah. Yamato was launched December 15th of 1941. And it only served as the flagship for the Imperial Navy until January 22nd of 1943, when its sister ship, the Munashi, Musashi, Musashi, became the flagship. And following that, Yamato would be just a headquarters ship in in the Bay of Japan. Mm -hmm. And some people even like labeled it Hotel Yamato because it it just sat there. It it didn't do anything. It just sat there, which just was wasting money. And I mean, that's even when, when it, it, even when it did, even when it was doing things, it it would 
a lot, from what I was hearing, it would a lot of the times be going to the battlefield, but like in a lot of battles, it either came in too late or some other issue kind of just ended up leading to it not doing very much at all. Right. <laughs> and it largely did... having to go back just for repairs again. Right. And this was following the Battle of Midway, which yes. you can watch a movie about Midway, and I'm pretty sure Yamato is in that film as well. Yeah, because it it was it was there for the Midway, but I think that's one of those battles that, like I said, it was there, but it came in too late to really contribute all that much to the battle. It did do a little, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, it, it did do a little, but it wasn't enough to say win the battle i'm pretty sure it was the first time that they had used their turrets like their big ones i believe it uh -huh. was that one that battle where they used them for the first time or it was in the final operation operation tengo mm -hmm. where following pearl harbor yamato led i want to say it was i'm trying to remember how many it wasn't very many ships but Yamato was the flagship, and they were leading a charge on on American naval vessels. Mm -hmm. And Yamato was in action there. Right. The issue was there was like 400 American airplanes dropping bombs. Yep. <laughs> and you had submarines shooting it with torpedoes. And after, I believe it was 11 torpedoes, the Yamato sank. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something interesting. So the Yamato weighed 72,808 tons. What happened is the boat capsized, but as it capsized, some of the weapons blew up, which caused the boat to break into two, much like the Titanic. And it ended up taking about 3,063 3, soldiers' lives that day. Oh, wow. And... That was so here's the thing. Yamato was so big that it was also just kind of a vessel where sailors would sleep and then go to the different battleships. Um they it was so big it had a hangar to have airplanes in. It had one of the giant turrets weighed as much as a battle cruiser did. <sighs> which is a smaller boat, the smaller Jesus. you know ship. It was huge. the 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 total cost of the of the Yamato was over eight billion dollars in today's <sighs> money. It was the hugest waste of money that the Japanese army spent. Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting once you watch this movie and realize that, like it, it this was just a waste of money mm -hmm. and so once Yamato sank basically the imperial army did as well when it comes to the uh, naval operations mm -hmm. because they had no more flagship and Yamato was basically their like pride and joy now it is still considered a very honorable vessel in the way mm -hmm. a lot of Japanese viewed it as the Yamato sank like a noble samurai would die in, in battle. Yeah. Um, it was fighting. 
it served its country and it fought to the very last second. Mm-hmm. Um, but during I mean, this, wasn't its, wasn't its usage during Operation Tengo a suicide mission essentially? Yes, basically. Um, yeah. The, at this point, Japan knew that because of America, there was no way they could survive. There's no way they could win. So they basically said, let's go put all of our weapons to use and see if we can do something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it ended in the, like, the utter destruction of their naval forces. Mm-hmm. And so that's that was that's kind of the story of Yamato. It it like I said, its lifespan was December fifteenth, nineteen forty one, through April seventh of nineteen forty five. And shortly after this, you know, World War Two would end with Japan surrendering to American forces, following some some other. Items dropped from above, some some bombs that were awful. That's that's one way to put it. That's one way to put it. And it's just it's it's interesting to see this very famous vessel that has become very popular. I mean, we just watched a movie literally last week where Yamazaki was glorifying the Yamato, essentially. Look at this new big space battleship that's going to save us, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have this story of, of reality and how this was a complete and total waste of time, money, efforts, resources. Well, reality and... to an extent. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, this movie does portray everything pretty accurately. The only thing that's really not accurate is the inclusion of the mathematician and a few mm. other characters. Yeah. Everything else is very accurate to, to the reality of, of this film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Yamato is basically like one of the biggest mistakes the Japanese military made in world war two. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, do you want us to go ahead and, talk about the film itself sure let's get into it the title of this movie is called the great war of archimedes Mm -hmm. which is genius this is the a genius title um do you do you want to explain the title or or should i i think i think you should explain okay because i'm i'm very vaguely familiar with Archimedes. I know all I really know is that Archimedes was like a Greek mathematician. Yes. Greek mathematician that interestingly enough did a very similar thing to what our main character does. So Mm -hmm. during the uh, Roman army's attempt to conquer all of Europe at the city of Syracuse, Archimedes was stationed as the inventor of war machines to Mm -hmm. prevent Roman soldiers getting into the city. He created large catapults that could be adjusted for range. Mm -hmm. Something called a death ray, which is using a mirror. 
which was using a mirror to shine the sunlight down to burn military <laughs> things. And something called the giant claw. <laughs> which is not as big as a battleship. What the giant claw was, however, in relation to battleships, was this contraption that was set so that something under the water would lift battleships up and capsize them. Oh my god. <laughs> Archimedes ended up being murdered during this fight. He was ordered not to be killed, but he did die. And just knowing that is so interesting. Like, that's minus the whole death part. That's what we see here. We see a, a mathematician create a war machine for a country to fight against a more powerful force. Right. And it's a very metaphorical title in, in that regards. And I think that's great. Mm -hmm. I, when I learned that I was like, man, this, this is actually really interesting. Mm. So props to, to the uh, author, Mita Norifusa for coming up with that title. I think that's a very genius title. Mm -hmm. So the film begins on, interestingly enough, it sort of begins at the end of the story. Yes. Which I love April that. April 7, 1945. Right. During Operation Tengo. And this is a very, it's a pretty extensive sequence. It's about what? Seven or eight minutes. Yeah. Something like that. Of the Yamato sinking. Yeah. And I kind of, so I was thinking about this and I feel like Yamazaki included the sinking of the Yamato at the beginning as a reminder for the audience throughout how this argument is kind of pointless, which is very interesting. And I should probably establish now um, Yamato is a term in Japan for what Japan used to be called. Mm -hmm. um, Yamato was also what the... Isn't it also used to refer to Japanese people themselves? Yes. And it is... So that area of Japan is now called the Nara Prefecture. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of the Gokai region. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, it was a term for Japanese civilians, and it also means, uh, I believe it's graceful, I believe mm -hmm. is what the definition, what, like when you go to the meaning, it's graceful, mm -hmm. um, which is, is brought up in this movie, and it's very quickly established that it doesn't really need to, like, graceful is not something that this needs to have. <laughs> um. But no, seeing the, the wreck of Yamato at the beginning, first of all, it definitely captures your attention very quickly. Right. And it also just go. the scene just really shows the futility of the Yamato in the sequence. I mean, obviously, you've got, like, the actual destruction of the Yamato, but there's even, like, little moments such as, like you see a group of soldiers on the Yamato shooting at like a fighter jet 
and they finally destroy it. But then the pilot escapes and ends up being rescued in the water by another plane. Right. And it's honestly, from the get go, you can tell that this ship is at the losing end of this. Like, there's no way it's going to survive. Not with the amount of fighter jets just swarming it. (laughs) Right. And you can see how powerless that this mighty machine was, which is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Because the entire movie were left, we're, we're, we're basically expected to go along with this false sense of this is going to be the machine that saves Japan, right? But we all know that it doesn't work, and it establishes this kind of dread of you, like you know what your main character is trying to do. It's very, mm-hmm. it's, it's established very early on. They want to make it so the battleship Yamato is not made. Right. But we know it does get made, so we know that all this work is for nothing. Right. Which is a very interesting take mm-hmm. to put this movie in. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people have been saying that having Oppenheimer and minus one's going to be an interesting double feature. But I'm going to make an argument and say that The Great War of Archimedes and Oppenheimer's a very, very interesting double feature. Because both films yeah, tackle I the actually, same idea. I actually thought of Oppenheimer a lot when I watched this film, to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because both of these movies are about the development of the biggest weapon of the time in each respective area, right? In Japan, it was the biggest battleship in the world. In America, it was the biggest bomb in the world. Right. And both start after the creation. Mm -hmm. So you basically watch a movie with dread of what's coming. And and as well as that, both films are more, rather than being about the war itself, both films are about the political aspects of, of the war yes and both follow a in in oppenheimer's respects it's historical in Mm -hmm. great war of archimedes it is fictional but both are following a intellectual trying to figure out how to make this work or not work right right in in context of archimedes our main character Tadashi Kai is trying to prove that the aircraft carrier is a more financially viable option, whereas Oppenheimer is trying to create Mm -hmm. a viable bomb to use as as a threat. Initially, both are established as threats. Yamato is a threat. The bomb is a threat Mm -hmm. to be used if necessary. Yeah. And it's a very interesting, like, looking at it from, from like, let's let's just cut both into their own little areas. So the Japanese point of view, based off this movie, is let's create the Yamato so America and Britain are scared to fight us. Mm-hmm. It's not the most practical weapon, but it's going to strike fear and create country pride. Yeah. Whereas for Oppenheimer, it's... Let's create this weapon. If we need to use it, we're going to use it. Mm -hmm. And 
it does if they if it doesn't strike fear like it doesn't matter we're going to drop this and it's going to end everything right which is very interesting you can you can very much tell the the view of what each country was trying to go for right yeah japan knew that they couldn't win against america that's established in the movie mhm yeah, so that's they wanted to f- pretty early on. <laughs> they wanted to find a way to psychologically win the war, mm-hmm. which is basically fear mongering, yeah. right? Whereas well, America that's... was, we have the best minds in the world, and we have the best technicians. We're going to find a way to end this war one way or another, mm-hmm. which is very scary because both are going at it at very different like angles. One's mm-hmm. trying to win a mental game while one's trying to win a physical game. Yeah. Like, that's a very interesting outlook that both sides were doing at the time. And it's very obvious, like, Japan knew they didn't have any of the resources necessary to to, to win a war. So they were trying to... It's the idea of saying, I'm carrying a bomb on me, give me what I want or I'll blow us all up Mm. versus here's the bomb in my hand. I'm going to blow up if you don't, you know, right. You don't comply, which is very interesting. I, I I just, I love the, I, the difference of viewpoints in Mm -hmm. that regard. Right. And I just, and I also just thought like, I felt like this was enjoyable in essentially the same way as Oppenheimer as well. Not not quite in the I guess not quite in the character story because Oppenheimer is very th- this I like the characters in this but Oppenheimer is like just it's a three hour drama about about one specific man so kind of right has a and bit of Oppen- an advantage there <laughs> so and I think what's different is the Grey War of Archimedes isn't making a stance on whether or not Yamato is a pro or a con per se. It actually, let me, that's not the right way to put it. The great war of Archimedes is just basically the idea of the movie is the battleship Yamato was a waste of time and everybody knew it, but they did it anyway. Whereas Oppenheimer is this story about how nu- nuclear devastation has been re- unleashed and could mm-hmm. destroy the whole world. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's also the element of Oppenheimer himself being persecuted for his creation. Right. Whereas you don't really see that in this movie. This movie, this movie's very Japanese. Mm-hmm. Our main character, Kai, is very anti-war for the first 30 minutes, anti-Japan. Right. But once he's, both have, both Oppenheimer and Kai have the same reasoning for why they're doing it. Kai doesn't have they they don't develop the the regret Kai would have, right? No. In, in 
Kai's Not circumstance, really. he only does it because he realizes his loved ones could be murdered mm-hmm. if they don't try to end the war. Yeah. That and the fact that he just knows, like, no matter what, a war is inevitable and it's going to come to him specifically, like, no matter what, since in the film, early on, he's planning to move to America so that he can so that he can study in, like, American universities for mathematics. Mm-hmm. But Japan is going... The Japanese army, specifically Admiral Yamato or Yamamoto, sorry, tells him, hey, we are probably, very soon, we are very likely going to war with America. It's essentially inevitable. And what's interesting about that statement is the only reason he knows that is because he's plotting something. And we'll we'll talk about that. Right. Um, later on, because I think that changes the whole viewpoint of this movie. Right. I mean, that's essentially a whole twist <laughs> yes. in how it's portrayed. And following that twist, everything changes. So this movie is a ticking time clock story. Mm-hmm. We, to, to not get ahead of ourselves, we're going to, let's kind of explain what this whole movie is, and then we'll get back to everything. Mm-hmm. So Admiral Yamamoto and his his party are trying to get their aircraft carrier approved yes. as the next big purchase that the Imperial Imperial Navy invests in, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the other side of the debate says, let's do the biggest battleship in the history of the world to strike fear. Strategy or fear-mongering? That's basically the argument here. Which right. is better? Is it better to have the bigger stick or is it better to say you have the bigger stick and hope that they believe you, right? Mm-hmm. So following this, Yamamoto and his team's basically dead set on how can we prove that our design's better. Any means necessary. And we're not told why. What we're told essentially is to, you know, to make it so Japan wins, right? But that's not actually the case, which is really interesting. <laughs> so they stumble upon this mathematician by the name of Tadashi Kai, who mm-hmm. used to go to Tokyo University, and he's a genius. And after learning about him, they realize that he can help solve their problem by pointing out that the proposal for the battleship is a very low-balled estimate for how much it'll cost. Right. And if they can prove that the battleship will cost more than the aircraft carrier, they basically have it so their design will be picked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's essentially the central conflict of the film is Tadashi trying to prove the future Yamato's just the magnitude of its cost whilst the party advocating for it, uh, which is propelled by 
Hirayama and a few other people, a man named Hirayama and a few other people, they try to restrict his access to any sort of resources and ways of figuring out how how much it may end up costing. And so basically the rest of the movie is Kai trying to use very resourceful ways of getting the information he needs. Right. It's the story of the development of the battleship Yamato. Which is an interesting way to like go about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, much like Oppenheimer's the I mean, it's not really the development of the bomb. I mean, actually, that's a a major part of the film. It's It's not the entire film, but like that is a pretty significant part, I'd say. Right. It's not about the bomb. It's about the creator, but you can't have one without the other. Right. And so you have Kai who ends up getting enlisted in the military as a lieutenant commander. That's high enough ranking so he has access to things mm-hmm. he gets notes about the debriefing from Yamamoto and his crew he right. ends up boarding a a, a destroyer which is a smaller battleship mm-hmm. and measures the entire boat and looks at the <laughs> blueprints to figure out an approximation of how large the ship would be mm-hmm. And then he finds out that what he really needs is to find the cost of labor, the resources and whatnot. Yeah. And this, he realizes he has a way because before, so we should establish kind of the big kicker here. So he got kicked out of Tokyo University Mm -hmm. because he was a tutor for a ship manufacturer's daughter. Yeah, the Azaki family. Mm-hmm. And while he was tutoring her, there were some feelings. Nothing happened, but Kai loves measuring things. He has this weird obsession with measuring things. Right. And one day, he is pulled into a meeting with the Ozaki the the father who's meeting with our villain i guess you could say hirayama yeah, one of the people well not hirayama but one of the people on his side right who they're talking about developing the largest battleship yeah. ever known and they're they're throwing out stuff and Kai questions the use of large bullets because that would not the accuracy would be less than 10%. What's the point of having bigger guns if you're not going to you know take I mean doesn't more he say it? the the real accuracy like would actually like so the guy I don't remember his name but the guy on Hirayama's faction like he says if if it's if the ship is sitting still, then our accuracy would be about like ten percent. And he's like, "Well, wait a minute. If if that's when we're sitting still, what about when we're moving? Wouldn't that be like practically like one percent or something like that?" Right, right. That's right. So 
yeah, it's like, well, what's the point? But because he questions that in front of, you know, this high ranking military, this high ranking naval officer. Right. And in front of, you know, Ozaki, he's basically said he, uh, he's told to get out and to leave and never come back because he's questioning the Japanese military, which at mm -hmm. the time was a big no, no. You know, you had nation, national pride, and that was everything. Mm -hmm. Well, if that he... and also like the the Ozaki father also walked in on Tadashi, like measuring like his daughter Kyoko's face, and he kind of figured the relationship was a bit further along. You could say, <laughs> right, right. And between those things, he got kicked out of Tokyo University and basically was shunned. Well, he wasn't necessarily kicked out, but wasn't he, like, essentially... Like... He was expelled. He was expelled because oh, was Ozaki he? went to Tokyo University and said, you know, he was sleeping with my daughter, you should kick him out. And that's mm -hmm. what happened. And they try to I use guess, that I, I against I guess I misremembered him. the subs. <laughs> I'm going off the dub. Ah. Uh. Um, but no, what happened is, uh, what's interesting is later on, they try to use that against Kai right. about his legitimacy, but then it's yeah, thrown out there like a campaign against him, essentially some of Hirayama's faction members. And they even tried to throw that out in the boardroom meeting at the very yeah. end. But then it it like everybody starts pointing fingers and they're like, well, you do this and you do that. And <laughs> and it really establishes how corrupt the political right. parties of Japan were. It's a really darkly funny moment as well. <laughs> right, exactly. So they enlist Kai's help, even though he has that he was expelled from Tokyo University. He's lim given limited resources. He's, you know there's smear campaigns against him and he has to find out how to figure out the specs of this battleship within two weeks before the next board meeting. Right. The rest of Which the movie is coming less than two weeks when the date gets changed. <laughs> right. So the rest of the movie basically is just this ticking time bomb of how, how long until, you know, they have this amount of time, and then at the end, game's over, right? Yeah. But they break that cliche, and I love that. So, like you said, so after they get all of the other info, they're like, well, we need all the resources. They go to many shipping yards in the area, and they're told to leave. Hirayama's mm -hmm. presumably got in their ear and said, don't let them in. Right. So Kai goes to the Ozaki daughter and asks for help. She mm -hmm. gives him a contact in Osaka and then him and his Henson go down to Osaka, which is a two day trip. Right. At this point, they only have eight days left. They're going to spend two days in Osaka, two days traveling, two days figuring all the numbers. And then, you know, it's going to be time. Right. But what happens is as they're in Osaka, the shipyard boss, yeah, shipyard boss, tells them he's not going to help because he got kicked out of the Navy for questioning Ozaki's work. Mm -hmm. And after many days of trying to get him to work with them, 
the Ozaki daughter comes and asks for help, and they're finally able to get in and figure out all the numbers. But while they're, you know, typing in all the numbers, looking at all the records, they get a telegram that the meeting's been pushed up to tomorrow. Yeah. They have 14 hours to get all the numbers, travel back to Tokyo, and be ready to give this presentation, which removes the ticking time clock cliche out of the picture, which I thought while was really interesting. Making it, while also still keeping it dramatic and raising the tension, essentially. Right. them having to just go, just manage to find the quickest way that they can feasibly calculate the costs right of the amateur or yeah and that's something that i think this movie does really well is it it's a two and a half hour long movie roughly roughly not quite but close to that it's about two hours ten if you include credits right it doesn't feel that long no not at all that's which is another thing it kind of has in common with Oppenheimer was that both movies are really engaging and go by shockingly quick <laughs> for right. their run times. And, and for I, someone like me who doesn't really care much for war films, that that is really surprising, frankly, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> And I'm the same way. I've not so I haven't watched a war movie outside of I guess Oppenheimer, if you want to count that. I've I've seen a handful. I've seen like Hacksaw Ridge, Joyx Knoll. I've seen I I kind of half watched the the like Netflix remake of All Quiet on the Western Front. But I wasn't really paying attention. I was, <laughs> I was kind of just a thing I watched with some friends, <laughs> and that's probably about it that I can. Well, maybe not it, but that's all I can remember off the top of my head. So actually, I have seen a war movie. I saw nineteen forty one. Oh, I've also seen nineteen seventeen. Just so it's established, nineteen forty one is like a parody movie of World War Two. Oh, I've never heard of it. (laughs) That's kind of racist and and directed by Steven Spielberg. And and it's it's a movie. It uses miniature effects and and has Japanese actors and and has a Japanese submarine firing on a California Bay small town that they think's Hollywood. Damn. It's it's a movie. It, it certainly sounds like a movie. I'm pretty sure Admiral oh, wow. Young... Oh, Toshiro Mifune's in it. Yes, he is. He is the military commander who, I want to say... Who was it? Who oh, wow. Was it he Christopher played? Lee, too. Christopher Lee's in it. Um, Slim Pickens is in it. John Belushi's the main character. Dan Aykroyd's in it. John Candy appears in it. There, there's a lot of actors in it that's like really popular. Um, John Landes. It's there. Spielberg pulled like did a lot, mm. and I think it's probably his most hated movie in his, in his entire 
in his entire filmography, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, the point in us saying this is we don't care much for war movies, but I think both of us found ourselves really quite entertained in this essentially long-form political debate that most of the movie is about. Right. So, and that's something that I did want to talk about. This movie is basically a combination of military boardroom meetings. Mm -hmm. But I'm perfectly fine with that. This is another example of how you can do a movie about military board meetings and it'd be interesting if your human yeah. characters are interesting enough. I feel like you're alluding to, to another film that we know. I'm just talking about <laughs> God. So I, I bring that up because Godzilla movies have this rep of like, there's too many boardroom meetings, mm -hmm. but I don't think that that could be a, that's a negative thing if done properly. Right. I mean, I mean, the issue comes from, you know, some movies, they just, it's just a lot of the boardroom scenes are kind of dry, more just to establish like the military's presence and what they're doing rather than this or how to defeat the monsters in some movies like the Gamera series, for example. Right. Where it's, where this movie, the boardroom scenes aren't necessarily just establishing, hey, this is what we're going to do to fight the monster, just so that the audience knows. No, the boardroom meetings are the actual drama and where the tension is in the film. I mean, the climax of this film is essentially one long boardroom meeting for are we making the Yamato or are we making the aircraft carrier? Right. But that board meeting is so intense. Yes. It, it's really, it's really well done. Um, but before we get to that, so while they're in Osaka there, they get the telegram that they have to, you know, speed up time, which they find a way to do. But they're cracking, they're they're typing in the numbers down to the very last minute. They travel mm -hmm. back to us, uh, Tokyo and they're they're typing in all their numbers. They're in the boardroom meeting and they're figuring out the numbers as they debate this, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. then they come down to the last second, and Kai is basically left to prove himself and buy time to get the final numbers. Mm -hmm. Which is where in the film they reveal that there's a formula for determining how expensive these battleships will cost, which is essentially multiplying the weight of steel in tons by the is it the hours worked on it? Yeah, it was something to do with like the labor expenses or so something like that, I think. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something to that sort of effect. And so he is questioned because he, he gives an answer. They say, well, how do we know that you're accurate? They go get classified information and have him see if he can Figure solve it. Figure out what the budget is based on like the, based on how much like s steel or 
was it steel or what? Yes, it was, was? steel. Okay. Steel for how much steel using how much steel there was to figure out the budget or the cost of like various Japanese warships, uh, such as like the famous like battleship Nagato, for example, I think is the first one. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, he's buying time for the, his essentially like military assistant of sorts to finish his calculations. And he's proven correct. Yes. And it's like a huge win for their side, right? Mm -hmm. This is where like that intensity starts to build up because you can tell that side that's against them is starting to get nervous. And right. the side that we're supposed to be rooting for is is winning, right? Mm -hmm. And the final numbers are punched in at the last second and he proves himself. But then we have such a twist that I love the twist that they come up with is genius, which during this whole sequence, there's a shot I do want to highlight before we reveal the, the twist, which is as we're going around the around the room, doing our shots of all of the individuals in the boardroom meeting, the designer of the Yamato is sitting there. And after the budget is revealed to be a hundred million yen more than what they proposed. Everything becomes even tenser because Kai asks the designer whose character's name is Kiriyama. No, not, not Kiriyama. The, the designer. Yeah. Is Wasn't he general Hirayama. Is it here? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was Hirayama. <laughs> they ask him why he lowballed it and where they got that number. And then Kai also throws out there that they're doing some under the table dealing with the Ozaki company, which he learned about while in Osaka, that if they pay cheap for a battleship, they will also buy two cruisers, yeah, which ends up costing more money. And essentially making it doing a, some creative accounting to make it so while it looks like the Yamato is cheaper than it you'd think it would be, the rest of that cost is actually going to other, to the cruisers just to sort of off, offset it and make it less obvious. Which shows the which is interesting because this is where it's it's basically confirmed the movies about the corruption of politics and the market during war right it's just like how it it's it's very interesting because now it's very well it's it's like established here and now that the film is not about how good the Yamato is or the aircraft carrier. It is quite literally how corrupt the system is. Right. And, and this and, is, and this is where the film sort of begins. Cause from this up to this point, the film was, has been rather like one sided on how it stands on the Yamato it's where like Hirayama's factions is very clearly 
the antagonists and like the Tadashi side and like the Admiral Admiral Yamamoto and Nagano and all them whom are advocating for the aircraft carrier are placed as being more in the right. And this is right. where that like dynamic of sort shifts completely and becomes a lot more nuanced, a lot more gray. Right. Because during this whole sequence, this is where the you have a mistress, you have a mistress comes out, and it's both sides of the table are thrown out about this. Right. It's brought up how you know they're they're working with a civilian company that's profiting off of the military to have weaponry and then you know it's they're trying to get more funding from the civilians of Japan who are paying tax dollars into this stuff and it's not even really benefiting them and it's who's going to get the better deal right it's it's basically let's make a deal and whoever gets the better deal wins mhm which is an idea you don't see a lot it it it's quite literally just exploiting how corrupt both sides are at this point and what's interesting is the other side's doing the same thing they're just saying for a smaller price right right what's what i think is really interesting is the other side that Kai is a part of is the protagonists, but they're also not necessarily in the right because no. they're still they're still wanting to cause war. They're still right. They, they are still prepping and planning for war. Neither and the film side throws us a massive like. <laughs> a, let's a talk about wrench. that at the end <laughs> because that I do want to stop and really talk about, but like both sides are are kind of going both sides are on the same opinion but wanting to go about it two different ways right? right it's not really a back and forth of what should we do it's how should we do it mhm one wants to be more strategic and potentially cost more lives which is the right way in the story but the film is not pro war and that's something Yamazaki wanted to talk about. And I'll, at the end of this episode, I have a very, I have two quotes that I want to bring up that Yamazaki said in interviews about the anti-war thing. But it's not a pro-war movie. So you're given the heroes or the protagonists of this movie, in air quotes, that are wanting to be more strategic with war, mm -hmm. to cost more lives and win. And then you have the other side that just that that is the antagonists or the the characters we're not rooting for with a less strategic but more stylistic choice right mm -hmm. which will cost less lives but also cost more in terms of resources so right. they both even each other out Neither of them's technically in the right, but both are not in the wrong. It's a neutral gray area, right? Like, 
Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the Japanese citizen, the aircraft carrier is the better choice. If we're talking about the Japanese military, the aircraft carrier is the better choice. But if we're talking about the idea of war, which includes lives, which lives come above, you know, finances and strategy. Less lives will be lost with the Yamato idea. So both are kind of left in this like back and forth that they don't talk about, but the audience can can very well figure that out very easily. Mm-hmm. That there's a problem, and like you said, there's a huge like twist at the end that really talks about that. Mm. But during all of this, there is a very beautiful shot where the designer of the Yamato is sitting there not answering because he's trying to figure out what to say because he's been beaten. Mm -hmm. They just proved that the finances are wrong for this movie or not for this movie, for this ship, this battleship. Mm -hmm. And as the camera does a dolly shot, it stops as his glasses hit the light just right. So that his glasses are filled with light. You can't see his eyes and his reaction. It's a stone-cold reaction. Very much like how... Uh, what's the character in Evangelion? Gendo? Gendo has that throughout the show. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder if Yamazaki was kind of paying homage to Gendo. Because Gendo is a very cold-hearted, war-hungry character. That's willing to give his own child's life to fight the <laughs> angels. I mean, it was less that he was war hungry and more just desperate to see his wife and desperately lonely. Well, fair enough. But I, I still wonder if that was kind of the idea was kind of paying homage to that because it's very it's a very anime esque thing to do, you know? Mm, maybe I did. I did actually kind of get an like anime-ish vibe in the movie at a couple points. What do you mean by that? I I don't know. It's just how this scene, I guess, played out, how this climax played out is it just felt, I don't know if it's, it might be the very, like, dramatic performances from, like, Masaki Suda and, like, the the guy in the Hirayama's party that is that was like in charge of like the smear campaign and essentially keeping Tadashi away from all the information. It might be their performances, but it felt very like exaggerated in a way that's very similar to what you see in like anime when like you'll get a climactic sequence and there'll just be like a lot of, I guess, really dramatic dialogue, even though Mm -hmm. like for like, if you're not watching it in the context of the scene, it'll seem like pretty mundane things. I mean, a lot of like the con, like the dramatic, like what the weapons that like Tadashi is using in this film is math. That is his weapon in this film. 
Right. And so like without that context, it, it could seem a little like ridiculous. So I don't know. I, maybe, maybe I'm just reaching, but I kind of got an anime-ish vibe at a couple points during this climax. Okay. Okay. Which could which could actually be an, a side effect of it being based on a manga as well. Mm-hmm. Right. It very well could be. But what's really interesting about this is eventually the designer speaks. And his response is probably the best response I've ever heard somebody make an argument for. Which is, the reason we lowballed it is because we don't want the actual numbers to come out so that it can be a surprise to both the public and they don't know that all their money's going to that. And if the info gets out that we're spending money on battleships, they don't hear the actual numbers and we can catch them by surprise. Mm. Which genius idea. And that sells and basically seals the deal. Until one thing. So as the decision's made and and they're going to go with the battleship plan. And it seems like all hope is lost. Until Kai looks at the blueprints, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he realizes there's a major flaw in the design. Which he did notice earlier, right? I think he did. Yeah, so when he was drawing up, so one of the things that was like astonishing was he was able to draw battleship plans without having any experience, and everybody was shocked Mm -hmm. by that. And during his plan, during the time he was drawing them, he noticed that at the front of the ship, on the port, the curve wasn't right. That would cause waves to go above and capsize the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And he noticed that that was something that carried over into the Yamato design, and he called that out, which led to a very under, a very non, it was a very, like, tense sequence, but not a lot was happening, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole movie kind of has, like, I don't know, I don't know if understated feeling is the right way to describe it where it's like even down to the cinematography i feel like everything pretty much everything here is really like really strong but it's like not you wouldn't it's not like glaringly obvious how strong it is you kind of have to be paying attention to the movie for like the cinematography, for example, to realize like how well, how well executed a lot of it is, how well lit a lot of it is and all that. Mm -hmm. See, for me, I, when I first noticed how well the film was shot and like composed was the opening with the battleship seeking the Yamato. Yeah. And the CGI is the most obvious like bit of, like great filmmaking i particularly i want to highlight the fact that the scale in that scene with the yamato is really good yes 
and the CGI is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like it doesn't look like CGI for the most part, besides some of the water effects. Uh, I'd say it's I'd say it's so like clear that it's CGI, but it's like for what it is, it's pretty good CGI. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know, you're you're absolutely right. And I think during this whole boardroom sequence with the the editing and how kind of it's it's not tight tight but it's kind of claustrophobic with how it's all shots right and the reaction uh shots it's it's very interesting i and mean then all we... the hand shots in it kind of help with that like claustrophobic feeling and i guess maybe that's also part of where i was getting that anime feeling was perhaps also the pan shots as well mm-hmm because some of them are really fast and dramatic. Right. Yeah, and that it it creates a sense of urgency mm. with that. Mm. And the score is also very very well done. Right. Um I didn't up until this point it's kind of upbeat but fast and kind of tense, but mm-hmm. in the last 20 minutes it does change too, which we'll talk oh, about yeah. that. Um no, what I really love about the sequence with the design reveal is the designer says nothing, and then he basically says, I've been disgraced, I'm leaving, do not use mm-hmm. my design. And everybody's clearly shaken up by this because they didn't expect that to happen. Right. And that's when they go with the aircraft carrier plan. Mm-hmm. Which is good, right? Seemingly. But this is when our reveal happens. So during this whole thing, I was honestly shocked. I was like, whoa. This took a turn. And at this moment, the whole movie visually, musically, tonally shifts. Mm. We get a hopeful, bright movie to a dark horrifying movie Mm -hmm. everything up until this point takes a much especially like from the side that tadashi was working for every one of their actions take on a whole more sinister undertone from this scene (laughs) and do you want to explain what that means so we essentially are shown a scene from earlier in the movie where after Admiral Yamamoto had introduced Tadashi to Nagano, Mm -hmm. the two are talking about like, you know, their interest in his math skills and proving like the budget of Hirayama's ship and all that. But then we find out what their end goal is, which is to have Hirayama eventually withdraw his design proposal. And then Yamamoto states that, well, if we want war with between the US between us and like the US and UK to end quickly, then the first battle is going to be a very very important battle and that's when he proposes the attack on pearl harbor 
which for me was like whoa even like, for me as someone who doesn't know a lot of the history of that that is a that shifts everything up until at this point on its head right <laughs> completely because at at that point it's basically it, it's it's established all of this fighting to do what was right in air right. quotes has been for malicious intent. Mm -hmm. They conned Kai into doing this so that Yamamoto could do his proposal, mm -hmm. which included a strategic military plan to attack America and start the Pacific War. Right. Which, I mean, ended with them, you know, losing. But still... The attack on Pearl Harbor was the first time in history that somebody had attacked American soil like that. Right. And I believe the attack on Pearl Harbor was a war crime because it was not, there was no declaration of war. It was a surprise attack by the Japanese on the military base, which is a war crime. You are supposed to formally announce we are going to war with you, prepare, mm -hmm. and then attack. They didn't do that. It was just a surprise attack that destroyed Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. which was a, is a very big thing for, for you know, World War II in America because that's basically what propelled America to be directly involved in the war. Up until this point, America was merely supplying tanks, bombs, jets, they weren't sending men. They were sending resources. That was their role in the war up until this point. But following the attack on Pearl Harbor, that basically jettisoned America's involvement to, okay, we're in this. We're going to end this. Mm -hmm. Which is where, you know, the Manhattan Project happened and the rest we don't see <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> right. But this is a very, like, up until this point, we were rooting for the side, and at least at this point, it's like, okay, they're no longer the good guys. There's no good guys. Yeah. <laughs> but then I must say, remember, the opening of this movie is the failure of their plans, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see Pearl Harbor happen, but we do see the sinking of Yamato, mm -hmm. which is basically the film's plan to establish that all of this work, all of this planning, all this strategy is going to end up in failure. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is when we sort of cut to about a month later when Tadashi goes to meet with Hirayama. And this sequence surprised me. So Hirayama tells Kai... Give me the formula so I can perfect this battleship. I know you like this battleship. I know you love this. You've basically created it yourself. Let me fix this so we can propose this and and win the proposal. Mm -hmm. And then that's when we're told that the plan is for the ship to sink no matter what. Yeah. 
which then adds a whole nother layer of context of like, what's the real motive here, right? Right, which is sort of explained by Hirayama with it essentially, the ship essentially being more of like a message of, I guess, Japanese nationalism and pride with like the name of the warship fittingly becoming Yamato, which as we explained is pretty significant to the Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, Kai caves and helps, which mm-hmm. this is a point that's really weird. So Kai was anti-war, anti-military, right? But then he goes to help because that's what's going to save Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to then, stop them from essentially experiencing complete despair and disgrace from the war and losing all of the country's morale. But they still end up conning him into doing exactly what he set out not to do, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting... Now, his his change from being anti-war, anti-military to to helping the military makes sense, but the yeah. change to helping with the battleship is the most, I mean, essentially what it is, it's the temptation of the apple, right? Because mm-hmm. Hirayama tells Kai, you like this. Why not help with this? Why mm-hmm. not make this perfect? What if you could make this better? Mm-hmm. And he succumbs to the temptation and becomes a part of the problem. Right. And then the film concludes with the launching of Yamato, mm-hmm. which was the plan all along by everybody. It's weird to think about that. No matter what each person on the team that we've been watching them argue all had the same end goal, but they were arguing for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yamamoto just wanted a, a reason to have a strategic plan to attack. Whereas Hirayama and his team just wanted to do it for na- national pride. Both have their problems, both have their squalls, both have their, their own motives and problems. So who's really the hero here? Mm. It's not Kai because Kai succumbs to the, the dark side, if you will. And helps with that. Right. But the film doesn't paint it as a good or bad thing. Hmm. Just, it's a lot like Oppenheimer where, the film doesn't take a stance on whether or not the construction of the Yamato was the good thing or the bad thing. Right. It just says that this is the problems with it. This is the positives with it. Mm -hmm. And Yamazaki went out of his way to establish that this film is not pro war. Mm -hmm. And, This is what he had to say about it. I think that war movies are a type of genre that doesn't get a lot of hits these days. However, my generation may be the last generation whose parents knew about the war and were able to hear firsthand information. 
I think it's better to have it as one of the themes to draw. At the time of the Eternal Zero, some people commented that it was war glorification or belligerent, but I don't understand why it was taken that way. I think that this time, as well as the Eternal Zero, are solid anti-war films. I think the best anti-war movies are to emphasize the tragedy of war, but that doesn't quite reach the hearts of the general public. In order to deliver it, it has to be entertaining. I wish I could convey my anti-war message like a body blow. Like a punch to the gut, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why Yamazaki included the sinking of Yamato at the beginning. The, the construction of this great warship just added to the casualty list. Right. It didn't actually do a lot. And another interesting thing I think is in the film, they went out of their way to showcase the American pilots saving each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the sinking of the Yamato, none of the Japanese crew members try to help the other from falling to their death. Mm -hmm. Each person's kind of going and saving themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... To me, it at least reads that America was more concerned about their their military men and, and the overall health of everyone, whereas the Japanese were focusing on themselves, mm -hmm. trying to do what's best for them, right? Mm -hmm. At least that's how I'm, I'm interpreting it. Sure. I, I, could I, be wrong. I didn't really read into that element too much honestly but that is an interesting way to look at it and that does kind of carry out through throughout the entire movie is each person's in it for themselves for their benefits nobody else's right even our main character kai does it for selfish reasons of helping his loved ones mm -hmm. right he doesn't do it to help the military initially but he does yeah. become, he does succumb to that ideology because 10 years later he's still in the military and he says at the end of the film that Yamato symbolizes the Japanese spirit. Right. Which I wonder what that was meant, why that was put in there. Like, is that the idea of the Japanese spirit is one that will be sunk very easily? Like, why know, include guess... that line? I guess it's just perhaps emphasizing the Yamato's, I guess, just its significance to Japan, like Japanese culture, perhaps, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. kind of like what I was getting from it. And going going forward after that, uh, in another interview, Yamazaki was asked, about the meaning of making a film about Yamato in 2019, right? Because this film was released July 26th of 2019, so it's only about four years old. Mm -hmm. um, he was asked, because yeah, at don't this tell point... don't me 2019's four years already. God damn it. So oh, that's, that was over 40 years after the events of, of this movie take place. 50 for, uh, I mean, 80 for some of it, right? Yeah, because the film's set in... 30s. God, it's almost 90 years, because it's a film yeah. set in 1933. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, well, 90 years from now, I guess. Sorry. Right. 80 years from when it was, 80 or so years when it was released. So this is what he had to say. And the translations here, here's a little shoddy. So I'll try and right. explain what, what's being said here. There are parts of Japan that I feel are a bit dangerous. After all, it was a peaceful era. But when I came here, there was something like a vague odor. And I thought, it's suspicious. Many people say that it resembles the eve of the war, but I also vaguely feel like the people will be helpless if they get caught up in a certain big trend as it was then. Mm -hmm. This time, I thought it would not be a bad thing to make a movie that makes people think, what is going on now? There is also a feeling that I want to say, I lost once, so let's notice that stinky feeling. So... The translation's a little weird here, but to my understanding, what, what Yamazaki's basically saying is there are parts of the modern-day Japan that don't look back at this and see it as a warning, right? It's mm -hmm. the idea of you have to look to the past for the, the answers for the future, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're not careful, history will repeat itself. Yeah. There are parts of Japan that are still very much based in the imperial ideology, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in this quote, I feel like what Yamazaki is saying is when you go back and look at this time period, there's something wrong about it. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's saying is if you look at then – to now it there are some similarities going on um one of them is you know the denials of the atrocities that occurred during world war ii right mm -hmm. stuff like that is is very much an imperialistic nationalistic outlook on things right right and there is that in Japan. Mm -hmm. But oh, Yamazaki, no <laughs> Yamazaki here is saying, from, from my understanding, is stuff like that is to be aired on the side of caution because if, if they keep going with that mindset then what what happened in this movie will happen again. So mm -hmm. watching this movie is kind of that airing of, is this occurring now? Is this something happening now? We've lost once because of this. Mm -hmm. let's, let's not let that happen again. Right. Let's not, let us not repeat the problems of the past now or in the future so we can move on from that mm -hmm. which i know a lot of people have mentioned that some of yamazaki's films and i'm going to dive into something a little controversial here because yamazaki's titles are known to be controversial two of the movies that yamazaki has made Pi uh, uh fueled a man they call pirate and the eternal zero were adaptations from a from novels and the person who wrote the novels very famously has went on record saying 
that Japan did nothing wrong in the war. Right. Obviously not true, right? <laughs> to put that lightly, yeah. Now, some people have questioned if Yamazaki uh, agrees with him, because mm -hmm. there's nothing that's really said that he does or doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. But I do feel like in this quote, Yamazaki basically says, let's not go back to the past. Let's let's like let's acknowledge that and let's realize that that was a bad thing. Right. And let's move on from it. I mean, I feel like even though this film isn't ex isn't super anti-war. It's def it's it's as you said, it's definitely not pro war by any means. And the fact of the matter is it very it makes it a very big point in the film, specifically that ending, that both sides are neither side is good. Both are both are like very shady, very corrupt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's the interesting thing is by the end of this movie, I feel like Yamazaki has made it very clear how he views all of this. Mm -hmm. So before we go into the transition there, unless you have anything else you want to say, I do just want to do some final things about the film. Okay. And its impact following its release. Go ahead. So the film I already mentioned was released July 26th of 2019. It was the first of three movies that year Yamazaki released. He did the great war of Archimedes stand by me, Doraemon, And I believe it was Lupin the third, the first. Those were all released during this time. Mm -hmm. I think, or was it dragon quest? It was dragon quest, things. not Doraemon. Doraemon okay. was like around 2014, I want to say. Maybe it was the sequel? Doraemon 2 was 2020. Okay, yeah, so it was, was Dragon, Dragon Quest, Quest, the story. Uh, Lupin Dragon the Quest, third, your and story, the Lupin the Third, the first, and The Great War of Archimedes. Yeah. Which Dragon Story released a week after Archimedes, so he at one point had two movies. Oh, wow. <laughs> it made 1.93 billion yen at the box office, which is $17.7 .7 million converted to USD. Mm -hmm. It was, it ended up being the 16th highest grossing film of 2019 in Japan domestically. And it got nominated for two Academy Awards, best actor for Masuki Suta and best supporting actor, Tasuku Imoto. Tasuku Imoto. Asuku Imoto. Well deserved, by the way. Imoto's performance is probably the standout for me in this film. Care to elaborate? I just felt he would, like, not only was he a really fun character, like, getting some of the better, like, comedic moments in the film, I just felt he, I don't know, I just felt. I feel like I saw like a different side to Emoto as an actor because I've seen him in two other films, Shin Kamen Rider and a J-horror film titled Remember. Mm -hmm. And 
where in Remember he played a rather like serious, like relatively minor character, and in Shin Kamen Rider he was kind of like a, I guess a, ter- a secondary or tertiary lead mm-hmm. for that film during its second half, where he played he's in a lot more of a kind of jokey ish like jokey ish attitude in Shin Kamen Rider. Whereas he he tries to be a lot more, his character is a lot more like uptight, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I just I fe- I thought it was interesting to see like a new side to Emoto's acting. I guess is what I'm getting at here. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And with that, so I do want to bring up that uh, we mentioned best actor with Masaki Suta. The character of Tadashi Kai is fictional, and so is Hirayama. Both of those characters were fictional, made for the story. Um, but outside of that, it was a pretty faithful adaptation, all things considered, of the story of Yamato. Mm-hmm. Um, Yamamoto did object to the creation of the battleships. Yamamoto is the one that devised the plan for Pearl Harbor. Um and whatnot. So the, it did hit on those historical aspects, which I, I love it when a film does that. Um, right. This has answered a lot of my questions for what the Yamato is, um, which I think is going to create some interesting context for f- future films we cover that do mm-hmm. feature the Yamato in it. Mm-hmm. Um. If you want me to, I'll go ahead and list off the cast and where we can also see them at. Feel free. Go ahead. So Masaki Suda, who played Tadashi Kai, was also in both Assassination Classroom movies. Death Note, Light Up the New World, Gintama 1 and 2, the Japanese remake of Cube, played Kamen Rider Double in in the show in all of the movies that Double appears in. Yeah, he plays Philip in that, the Double fans. There we go. Super Salary Man Sen- Senai Shi, Businessman versus Aliens, and Death Death Note New Generations. I kind Hiroshi- of noticed through this film there were quite a few common writer actors on that yes. note. <laughs> yes, there is. Hiroshi Tachi, who played Admiral Yamamoto, was in Full Metal Alchemist 2 and 3. Tasuki Imoto played Shojiro Tanaka, who was in Shin Kamen Rider and appeared in the Crayon Shin-Chan Kamen Rider episode and was also in the Moonlight Mask movie. He was also in Keda Amamiya's Unholy Women. Minami Hambe, who played Kyoko Ozaki... Hambe? Hamabe. Hamabe. Yes. Played Kyoko Ozaki, who was also in Shin Kamen Rider... Yes, and, Rudico. <laughs> and the, the Crayon Shin-Chan Kamen Rider crossover, and also appeared in Super Salaryman Senai Shi. Huh. Min Tanaka, who played Tadamachi Hirayama, was in The Eternal Zero, Blade of the Immortal, Ghost Book, and Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. Oh, wow. Jun Kinemura... <laughs> who played Vice Admiral the legend Osami Nagano oh boy we're gonna be here a second just get strapping <laughs> that was in 
Submersion of Japan, Audition, Itchy the Killer, Tomie Forbidden Fruit, Alive, Samurai Reincarnation, Vital, Godzilla Final Wars, Sinking of Japan, K-20 The Fiend of Twenty Faces, Parasite Part 1, Parasite Part 2, Shin Godzilla, Attack on Titan the Movie Part 1, Attack on Titan the Movie Part 2, Fueled, The Man They Call Pirate, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Chapter 1, Diamond is Unbreakable, Full Metal Alchemist, Destiny, The Tale of Kamakura, Suicide Forest Village, Japan Sinks, People of Hope, On Miyuji 2015, Why Don't You Play in Hell, Moonlight Mask, Kaidan Horror Classics. He also, I didn't notice this until now, but he was in Midway. What's this? Midway, the American movie about the Battle oh. of Midway. He he was in that movie as well. So I'm sure. I th- I think he Emmerich produced that. Oh, I looked it up. Yeah, it's directed by Roland Emmerich. Oh, is it? Yeah. Now, so now I'm gonna have to watch this. I'm really curious. Um, <laughs> yes, he Woody Harrelson's in it as well. So this is I was really shocked that June Kinemura's in this. Mm. Um I am gonna have to check out Midway now and see how <laughs> this works as a uh like I think I've heard feature. of this film, but I didn't actually realize it was an American film. I think it got an Emmerich. I I feel I wanna say it got some awards, if I remember correctly. I oh don't no. Know. It says Oscar bait. Hang on. Let me, I'm going to double check. So it got one nomination and that was for youngest artist award. Never mind. Damn. <laughs> but I might watch Midway now just to see Jun Kinemura and what that does. I mean, we know that Yamato was at Midway, so maybe he's on the Yamato again. <laughs> Beyond him, you have Isayo Hashizumi who played Admiral Shigetaro Shimada, who was in Space Battleship Yamato, The Eternal Zero, and Destiny, The Tale of Kamakura. All three of those are Yamazaki titles. Eita Okune, was, who played Hunihiko Tako, Ta- Takato? Takato, was in Juon Origins and Love and Peace. Hey! <laughs> Katsuya Kobayashi, who played Mineo Osumi, was in Kamen Rider Build plus the movies. Hajami Yamazaki, who played Yoshio Fujioka, was in Shin Ultraman and Kamen Rider Forze plus the movies. Fumio. Oh, Kobayashi was the build driver. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out who the hell he played in Build. <laughs> Fumio Kohinata played Sakizo Onu, mm-hmm. who was in Ring 2, Audition, Darkwater, Kashurn, Always Sunset on 3rd Street, Always yes. Sunset on 3rd Street 2, K-20, The Fiend with 20 Faces, Goemon, Full Metal Alchemist, 20th Century Boys 2, The Last Hope, 20th Century Boys 1, The Beginning of the End, and Ashura. Mm. You had Shofuku Te Tesru, Tesurube II, who played Kiyoshi Osato. 
You had Kenichi Yajima, who played Tomie Kichi Ozaki, who was in Onmeyuji, Sinking of Japan, Fueled, A Man Called Pirate, Shin Godzilla, Inugami, and Gemini. And then just as a special uh, shout-out, Nakoe Sato also did the score for this movie. They also did the score for Parasite Part 1 and 2 and a ton of other Yamazaki titles. Mm -hmm. Almost every Yamazaki title we've covered this month, with the exception of Verse, or not Verse, sorry, Returner. Yes. So with that, I'm kind of out of things to say without minus one last thing that's a Yamazaki fact. So if you have anything you'd like to add, go right on ahead. Honestly, the only thing, like... Only thing you haven't mentioned is that there's still like a couple. I think there's still a couple other common writer actors in the film that you miss. Like I noticed, I don't remember the actor's name, but he was also in Space Battleship Yamato. He was one of like the Black Tigers, I think they were called mm-hmm. in the film. He was in Common Writer Guy, I noticed, but like, and he was in this film. But other than that, I've I think I've I think I've said most of my piece for this film. Okay. So I just have one last thing to throw out there, which I thought was interesting. So as of 2019, Yamazaki, so these are the highest grossing directors in Japan. Number Mm -hmm. one, Hideo Miyazaki with $119.1 billion, or billion yen. Wait, did you say, were you referring to Hayao Miyazaki? Yes. (laughs) I thought you said Hideo. <laughs> Did I say Hideo? It sounded like it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Second place, Kunihiko Yuiyama, who has 87 billion yen. Mm-hmm. Third place, Katsuki Motohiro at 51.1 billion. And sitting at fourth place is Takashi Yamazaki at 47.3 billion yen. So oh, wow. Yamazaki is the fourth highest grossing director of Japan as of 2019. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is, out of these four directors, Yamazaki is the only one continuing to produce movies that are doing very well. Miyazaki, I mean, of I, course... From what I can understand, he also seems to be like the only one that's still like at least consistently still doing live action films. Yes. Cuz from what I understand the Yuyama is like largely an anime director doing like yes. Pokemon and obviously Miyazaki is very famous for his anime. Right. And that's something else interesting is Yamazaki is the only one to do science fiction films, war movies, anime, dramas. Mm-hmm. Yamazaki's the only one with a range on him, which is very interesting to think of. I mean, Miyazaki has a fair bit of range. His films are his a lot his films cover some very different things from one another. Fair, but they're all anime. Right, but I, I could be wrong, but, like, some of them do cover, like, some cover, like, elements of war and the morality of it, I think. Right. I, I don't remember if Grave of Fireflies was directed by him. I could be wrong on that. Okay, yeah, I am wrong on that. 
But nonetheless, that was still his company that did Grave of Fireflies. Right. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's it's really weird to think that Yamazaki is is going to be tackling a Godzilla movie. Right. And with that essentially getting the biggest biggest like main live action director in Japan for Godzilla. <laughs> exactly. And with that, I do want to ask it's not Yamazaki month, but we're going to follow suit and do our Yamazaki, you know, typical things. Mm-hmm. What about this movie makes you excited for Godzilla minus one? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's probably two like main things I noticed that really got me excited. The first, you know, from that opening sequence with the Yamato is just how well done that opening sequence is, particularly with its scale. The Yamato seems absolutely gigantic in that scene. It is a towering, like, ship. And even throughout a lot of the other scenes of the Yamato and other warships, it's got the right amount of awe for the size that makes me, again, very, very excited to see Yamazaki handle Godzilla because that is something that is absolutely necessary for the character, I feel, of Godzilla. Okay. And then, and and then on top of that, the just how dramatic and tense the boardroom scenes are. You know, and the political element of the film and all the nuance with that makes me excited for how minus one may portray because there's no way minus one isn't going to at least have a political element to it with its setting. Right. Like, I feel like it's inevitable that there is some political element, no matter how major or maybe minor of an element it is in the film. Right. And that's where I'm going to pick up because that's what I wanted to highlight. Watching this movie basically solidified my confidence in Yamazaki. The reason I say that is I think he's the most qualified since Honda to pick up this mantle at this point. Mm. Honda started or Honda prior to Godzilla 54 was working on war movies and Mm -hmm. war drama movies. Right. Mm -hmm. And up until this point, we haven't had a director that was doing those same things. Right. Now Yamazaki's can do more than that, but that's another thing. Yamazaki has proven to do space adventures Yamazaki has proven to do time travel action movies. Yamazaki mm. has done heartfelt children's movies. He's done drama political thrillers. He's done war movies. He's done animation. He's done live action. He's done he's done all of these genres. And I think he's the one that could do a very good job at, at capturing the political aspects of Japan at the time. Based off of the the quotes I just read you. I think him and Honda would see very eye to eye with how things are and were. Unlike 
Anno, who went for a very militaristic approach for Shin Godzilla, Yamazaki might go the opposite. And I'm curious how that might turn out. Right. I'm very curious how the idea of anti-war and corruption is going to bleed into minus one because I guarantee you that will. I mean, we've already seen in the teaser trailer signs protesting war, right? Seemingly, yeah. So needless to say, I think minus one is going to be a very politically charged movie. And I think we're going to see something similar to the Great War of Archimedes when it comes to the political aspects. Right. But I think it's going to portray it in a way where Japan was in the wrong, but America's in the wrong as well because America's destroying Japanese culture, but Japan's way too militaristic for its time. Possibly. Which could create a very interesting, like, neither's in the right, neither's in the wrong. They have to figure out how to save the people. Mm Mm-hmm. Which sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this just adds to what can Japan do to fight back, right? Right. Like, now we know Japan wasn't making the smartest decisions. So what what military might would they have remaining following the war? I'm very curious to see the political and sociological aspects because of this movie. And you brought a scale again. Scale looks like it's going to be a perfect for this movie. I can't wait to see what Yamazaki does because this just adds to it all. I want to see the Eternal Zero now. I'm really curious on how that movie is because that got him some Academy Award wins, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow. And the Eternal Zero seems to be his most controversial movie from what I've heard. Yeah. And that's something I will also say. I think this establishes that it's going to be controversial. There's Mm. no way Godzilla minus one will not be. (laughs) Like looking beyond the fact that, you know, every new Godzilla movie has the controversial nature of which is better and and is this good or not. This is going to have political debate. It has to. If it doesn't, I'm going to be shocked. Yeah. Which is going to lead to a very, very interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. And I'm all here for that. And I can't wait to see what Minus One brings because Yamazaki has had experience in World War II films. Yamazaki had firsthand accounts of World War II. He might be one of the last directors, really, that could pick up the mantle that would at least have firsthand accounts stories right right yeah so i'm just this this establishes something that shows that yamazaki is well aware of where he's at in in time Mm -hmm. and this is the most recent title we've covered from him that's live action and if this is where he's at now i'm really excited to see what four years has done to him yeah no exactly (laughs) but with that being said 
I would like to do a new Yamazaki ranking. Oh. So we're going to do what we did last time, Rex. We're going to do the ones we've covered, and then I want you to add your always duology. Yeah. So let's start at number five, and then we'll make our way up to one. Mm -hmm. For number five for me, I would have to go with Space Battleship Yamato. Same here, same here. Mm. I just ended up... It It's a good movie, but I feel, as both you and I discussed in the episode, it's definitely the weakest script of the Yamazaki films that either of us have seen. Like what? Yeah, the, the script and story is just not... I feel the story, the actual story is good. It Like... It's just the script doesn't execute at all as well as it could have. Yes. But then for number four, I have gotten, I've got Parasite Part 2. So this is where we start to differentiate. I have Returner. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think, as I've said previously, I think Parasite Part 2 is just... It's a, it's juggling too much, and that's that's my main issue with it. Is what's there is good. It's got some of Yamazaki's best cinematography, I'd say, with that whole end sequence. But ultimately, I just feel this it's juggling too much and isn't. I and I find Returner more fun, which is a good segue to number three, Returner. <laughs> and see what's funny is for me those are switched returner yeah. <laughs> is it's fun it's not a bad movie like first i want to establish i don't think any of these are bad movies no none of these are bad movies but returner has less memorable moments it's a fun movie but it's a little more forgettable for me because it's, sure. it's basically the, the combination of a bunch of different franchises into one whereas parasite part two the final fight for me the cinematography although having a lacking story compared to the first one is very memorable and looks amazing. And I can't right. get those visuals out of my head. So for right. me, it goes returner at four and parasite part two at three. Yeah. As I said before, I feel like my opinion on those two could shift around a little with time. I've kind of noticed that you've, that I, I still occasionally refer to Returner as Versus, so yeah. <laughs> take that for what you will. So, I'm curious, what's number two, Rex? So, number two for me, I think I'm going to have to go with Parasite Part 1. Okay. Huh. What about you? I went with The Great War of Archimedes. Really? Oh. <laughs> so... Obviously, so your number one is the Great War of Archimedes, and for me, number one's Parasite Part One. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Our four and three are swapped, and our two and one are swapped, but our five is the same. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you so tell me why Archimedes is better than Parasite, and why it's number one for you. I just thought it was a really, like, just, it was probably one of the most engaging 
Yamazaki. It, it was outside of one other Yamazaki film I've seen, the most like engaging Yamazaki film I've watched out of I feel like it's the best paced overall. I feel like it also has possibly the best performances from mm-hmm. like Masaki Suda and Tasuku Emoto in particular. I feel like delivers a really good performance in it. And in general, I thought it was also a very tense, surprisingly tense movie and, you know, all around very well-written for a film that is, has its climax essentially being a boardroom meeting. Right. See, for me, I think Great War of Archimedes is, it's a very engaging story, right? And it's intense in certain moments and the twist at the end, like, like I got goosebumps from, from the Pearl Harbor reveal and drop, but nothing is going to beat that parasite script. I firmly believe parasite part one has one of the best scripts, a science fiction movie I've watched has. Mm -hmm. I love how everything pays off. I love how everything works together. I love Mm -hmm. how the movie does not complete the story, but ends it on a point that makes you want more. Right. I love that script. I think that is the best Yamazaki script by far that I've Mm -hmm. seen. War of Archimedes, amazing. Great movie. The scale is great. The CGI is great. The characters are great. The fact that the, like you said, the climax is in a boardroom meeting, but is still very, very intense, is great. But I think with the there's it's obvious that Yamazaki is struggling with tackling. And I think it's because of the the controversy from Eternal Zero that kind of led to this creative decision, probably. Mm-hmm. He's trying to cover the subject material, but also not glorify it. But it's still a great story. It's still a great movie. Right. I just I that parasite script is is phenomenal. <laughs> Fair enough. So with that I think well actually with that Rex you have to include two more movies as you've watched yes. Always Sunset on 3rd Street and Always Sunset on 3rd Street 2. So give yes. us a rundown and explain why you would put those two me- two movies where you would put them. So Always Sunset on 3rd Street 2 like last time, is going between Parasite and Returner, thus going to spot number four on my list. Which one is? The first Always Sunset. Okay. Yeah. I I like the Always Sunset on Third Street. It is is a very solid film with a, a phenomenal cast. It probably Yamazaki's best cast in all honesty which is even more impressive when you consider the fact that it is a massive ensemble as well Mm -hmm. but yeah I didn't I didn't love the film it it's a little too long for my taste but I feel like without Without this film being as strong as it is, I don't think I would have loved, I don't think I would have liked its sequel 
as much as I do. And, you know, speaking of which, Always Sunset on Third Street 2, you know, it's still going straight to the top. I I absolutely adored that film. I love the second, like, not only do you have that scene at the beginning, but you just have a, a really very compelling continuation of uh, the story that was going on in the first film. You know, interestingly enough, you sort of do also cover a bit of like post-war trauma as well in the film as a little new element for Shinichi Tsutsumi's character, since his his character was previously a soldier in the war. But yeah, no, Always Sunset 2 hit me in the gut, man. It, It really hit me in the gut emotionally. And I love it for that. Okay. All right. Well, with that, I think we're we're we've pretty much wrapped, haven't we? Yeah. I'd say so. So, before we can go, we have one last thing and it's the most noble of podcasting traditions. Mm. It is the shameless self-promotion. Yes. So, Rex, where can you where can the lovely listeners find you at? Well, dear listeners, you can find me on YouTube at Rexino, on Twitter at Rex underscore Xenomorph, and on Instagram, Rex underscore Xeno. And if you want to take a look at some of my writing, check out the Tokusatsu Network. As for me, hello, my name's Elijah. You can find me on YouTube at ET13Productions, on Twitter at ET13Productions, or on Instagram at ET13Productions. If you want to find my personal accounts, I won't link them, but it's not hard to find. Besides that, I write for Kaiju Ramen Media. I am the production manager and head of the video department, so you can check us out on Twitter or Instagram at Kaiju underscore ramen, on YouTube at Kaiju Ramen Media, or check out our website, kaijuramenmedia.com, where you can read news articles I wrote. I actually wrote the first English article on the reveal of the Takashi Yamazaki Godzilla Minus One movie when it was announced back in 2022 unofficially. You can also order all 10 of Kaiju Ramen Magazine's issues, whether it be the PDF or physical copies. We only have a handful of physical copies of issue 9 left, and issue 10 has just went up for pre-order recently. Go check those out, and like I said, you can order the PDFs if you missed out on all the others. You can also find me eventually on Monsters with Attitude. Check out our Facebook group or our YouTube channel. I'm one of the many hosts of that YouTube channel. So that's all I do. Um, It's a lot of stuff, but it's a lot of fun. But as for the podcast, if you want to help us out, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. That boosts our ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't. Actually, that's a lie. I use a MacBook to do this podcast. But you can rate us on Spotify now. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Kaiju Conversation related, Follow us on Twitter at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. If you're like me before podcasting and you don't have any social media, lucky you, you can email us at kaijuconversation at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, you know the drill. And as always, we'll read your reviews on air for everyone to hear. We 
also have a Teespring store. Eventually, we'll have original artwork on there. But until then, you can sport our awesome logo on a T-shirt or maybe even a coffee mug. If you'd like to check chat with us, check out our Discord server full of others that have similar interests to you. It's a great community full of great people. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you can be notified anytime we upload a video. We sometimes post exclusives to the channel like bloopers or or episodes or mini-suits talking about news or other subjects. We also have an interview with Mechagodzilla designer Jared Kurchevsky on the channel. Probably butchered his name, and I apologize for that. As always. And a huge thanks to Rex for editing all of these episodes and all the other content we upload. His links can be found in the description below. Along with Rex, we'd like to give a huge thanks and shout out to Danny DeManna of the Godzilla Novelization Project for his amazing vocals on our theme song. You can support him by following him on Twitter at Danzilla93 underscore GNP or visit his website GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. And a huge thanks to Grattan Conwell from the podcast Giant Monster BS for composing the music for our theme song. You can support him by following the podcast on Twitter at Giant Monster BS or on any podcast platform under the name Giant Monster BS. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here. So thank you guys so much for listening. It was awesome to cover another Yamazaki title. We're so happy to help build that hype train up for Godzilla Minus One coming to U.S. (laughs) theaters December 1st, 2023. Japanese theaters November 3rd, 2023. So I can't wait. Rex, I know you can't wait. And we can't wait to share the excitement and love for Godzilla Minus One with all of you listeners. Yes. So with that, we're going to wrap things up here, and I just have one last thing to say. Please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys. Bye. We are set. We are in debt. There's nothing to sweat. Life's too short now, baby. Just to not talk big now.